Welcome back to Conversations of the Leaky Cauldron, Episode 6 on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Chapters 24, Rita Skeeter's Scoop, 25, The Egg in the Eye, and 26, The Second Task. And back with me, as usual, are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, you two. Yo, good to be back. Happy Martin Luther King Day. Happy MLK Day. Yes, greetings. Greetings, and because of him, we can meet a little bit early today, and uh, without all the other wonderful things he's done, that too is yet another wonderful thing that his good influence has pushed into the future, which is now our present. So, speaking of the present, where do y'all want to start today? Rita Skeeter and her scoop on our giant Hagrid friend, our feelings towards Cedric Diggory and his very poor clue that we still had to figure out ourselves with this you know, this, this egg that we have to put underwater or the second task where we find out the true feelings of each of our champions and, you know, what drives them and motivates them at the core. What were y'all thinking? I, I guess I was thinking probably with Rita Skeeter, just since she, well, she reminded me, I guess a few things reminded me of book two in this one, but she did because she's another writer, uh, like Gilderoy Lockhart is a writer. And I'm always sort of interested in that. And we see here some of her um, sort of methods coming through, although it's still a bit mysterious how she got this scoop. Um, she's, she's more than happy to just like wreck people's lives. Yeah, in both cases, her and um, Lockhart sort of seem to embellish the truth. Like you don't really get examples of writers who are honest, which I, I guess is sort of strange now that you bring that up, but the two best-selling writers we've met are people who have a difficult relationship with the truth or with their role in it, or you know maybe manipulate other people's stories for their own personal gain, which is interesting. Well, that, that just makes me think of sort of even the broader theme that we come up with, which is people's inability to to um, wrangle with the truth and to accept it because we'll see, especially at the end of this book and bleeding into the beginning and the major events of the next one, that even the Ministry of Magic is unwilling to face the truth. So that's, it's interesting that you two bring that up because it makes me almost wonder, because I was paying very close attention to how Rita Skeeter is, is described this time around. And it's even said that she has an acid green dress on and I think an acid green pin as well. It's described as acid, something that is corrosive, that eats away at you. And uh, with the idea being that she is, you know, there's a, an adjective we have for describing somebody as especially mean and sharp, vitriolic based on actual acid that can be thrown onto your face. In fact, there's a Sherlock Holmes story about somebody's face being ruined by vitriol being thrown onto it. And so, mm. I, I, I was wondering if you were starting to also see sort of a tension between Albus Dumbledore and Harry Potter and what Hogwarts is, and then sort of the public at large represented by the journalist Rita Skeeter um, and the, the sort of reading populace reading Ray Lockhart in the lack of acceptance by the Minister of Magic of the coming of evil, whether there is actually a tension between those... Uh, whether there's like a faction within the wizarding world that just straight up does not want to face the truth. And perhaps that is what she and Gilderoy and the ministry are, are catering to almost as if they're more propaganda than they are seekers of truth. Absolutely. I mean, well, in her mind, she is telling the truth, right? Um, 
or at least she's convinced herself that that's what she's doing. Uh, and um, she does seem to sort of parade that with her her appearance. Like she's very loud. Uh, her her appearance, appearance is very loud and her voice is very loud. Um, and her stories uh, scream with, with all sorts of evocative details, right? Um, some of which are stretching, right? But she, from her perspective, I think would say, right, she's getting this, this story out there in a way that people are going to be able to hear it, you know, and, uh, and whatever she's done that isn't quite honest. Um, it's all in service of that end, which I think for her is, is the, the important thing, right? That the people find out what is going on at Hogwarts. And like you say, Hogwarts does seem to be a sort of a different place maybe than, than the wizarding world at large. It's, it's a, elite selective institution um and harry potter and dumbledore are elite you know unique sorts of wizards um they they seem not to really represent maybe a lot of the readership of of the rita skeeters of the uh of the gilderoy lockharts you know um so it's i guess this takes me back again to to ron weasley's family there hmm. In some way, mm -hmm. right, his mom was Gilderoy Lockhart. So maybe, you know, that's the closest thing. And he seems to know a lot about the wizarding world and like what's common sense there. So he's kind of our best, I think, example of the kind of average wizard that we've really seen. Yeah, well, I think, I think we hear about it in these chapters. So maybe it's in the future. I did read ahead, but not only is Molly... Uh, was she a big fan of Gildory Lockhart? She's also a, a really big fan of Rita Skeeter, or at least um, a consumer of her of her articles um, and like of the magazine for which she writes and the newspaper and all of that. And yeah, there is a sense in which I think Hogwarts is, um, I mean, it's full of towers and whatnot, but it's also like a, you know, maybe a good, a good analogy would be like the white tower in the real world um but like oh it's all well and good to you know go pursue truth at a in the safe space of a university but you know this is the real world and maybe truth is a luxury or is is uh you know not always like doesn't always have the same currency in uh, an environment particularly one in which like it's not culturally i mean already the, the wizarding world operates in kind of a with a value of like obscurity for the sake of comfort or for the sake of of like um personal safety you know like they don't they don't speak about things as they as they are right they Voldemort has a has a bunch of names that he goes by and there's there's things about the past that you know you don't speak about and there's there is kind of a cultural preference for um um uh, obscuring the truth to the degree to which it's inconvenient um now it, to me i think rita skeeter i i don't know i don't see her as a, a seeker of truth i think she seeks her own she seeks fame the same way that um lockhart does but maybe she sees fame differently maybe she wants to be of service to the greater world by exposing the truth at hogwarts or whatever but i don't know um, she misses the mark so like widely um, and, and twists the truth so much with that little quick quotes quill 
but it'd be, I don't know. Um, but I, the, 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 the wider wizarding world seems already predisposed to believe any story that someone in a position of relative power and influence is ready to give them because they don't want to be scared. Um, whereas I think maybe at Hogwarts, maybe because of Dumbledore, fear is less of a deterrent to the truth. Um, yeah. And that's so interesting because it makes me almost wonder whether what she's offering as a writer and what the ministry offers is sort of a false sense of security and also maybe a false sense of superiority. Because it strikes me that people who become very famous as writers and as entertainers often occupy a niche and they make people feel in a certain way consistent. Like the people that would have listened to Alex Jones, generally they want to listen to somebody that makes them feel smarter than that person. And that's what they're always going to get, given the quality of his show and like how he presents himself, which I would say is quite the opposite from what we present. But what Rita Skeeter presents is what she does is she takes people down, right? She takes out Dumbledore, who I've actually explicitly said is the symbol for a god, which is a very interesting cultural commentary now because, of course, many people speak against, like, say, the notion of God often citing uh, the foibles of those who practice religion as reason, which, you know, is poor reasoning. But again, the sort of reasoning you would expect from somebody untrained in reason. So it's interesting that both of you are so fair about how you describe Rita. When I read her, she so clearly is motivated to write things in such a way that it's hard for me to admit that she is anything other than a yellow journalist. But it does seem like what you, mm. you are, 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 are hitting on with her is that she's providing the people with what they want rather than, and I think and you can tell me whether you think this is correct, rather than what a newspaper reporter is supposed to do, which is to give a correct perspective on the situation that helps somebody to understand the situation in a way that makes them actually safer, even if they don't feel safer. Like, for instance, she should be, when Voldemort comes back around, talking about the fact that he's there because that can keep you from dying rather than keeping you from feeling like you're going to die, which then results in you dying anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I in no way want to defend her. I think that there's a market that she serves, right? Like she fulfills a demand, just like Lockhart fulfills a demand. I mean, they're not, they're not without blame. Um, people who twist the truth for their own profit. I mean, aren't they somewhere in Dante's like eighth or nine, eight, not in the ninth, but in their innate circle, yes. they're people who, who, who pander. I mean, I know that that's not how he, how he meant pandering, but I mean, in a way, they're pimping out the truth. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think that that they exist. I mean, put this, take this out of the Wizarding World context and put it into ours, right? Like, um, the take the the news media as it stands today, right? Like, yes, they are. When when people report stories that are um, deliberately designed to make them more ad money through ridiculous titles and clicks like yes the editors and the editorial staff and the, the system that makes money off of that is the problem but so is the fact that they know that that will work right so like they're to blame because they perpetuate a system off which they make money because there's a there's a culture there like there's a there's a, a much deeper problem and they and they are part of it but they're also a symptom of it um and, and i don't know if that makes any sense but it seems like that's something that is some is true about our primary world that is also true in the wizarding world that 
yeah, I, I blame, I think she's, I like the word yellow. Like she's, she's coward. She's, she's selfish. Um, and she's way off the mark, right? Anybody who, um, you know, who, who <laughs> genuinely looks at Hogwarts and thinks that the real threat is Hagrid is, is not looking <laughs> clearly. Right. Yeah. Um, right. And I, I, I guess it also makes me think uh, of this great um, kind of plot line in the Aaron Sorkin show called the newsroom where the main character wants to basically like clean up journalism and bring the morality back into, you know, delivering the news. And he's dating this woman who is a gossip columnist and it's just going terribly because she's like writing these takedown pieces for the equivalent of like people magazine or something like that. And, and he just, he lays into her about like, you are killing like everything that he was trying to do, which is like elevate the, like uh, elevate the news watching population and like you know, bring back civil discourse and make the news about facts and truth so that you're ready to go to the ballot box as a voter and like equip citizens with the data that they need to make a good decision. And she's just like, he calls her like basically poison. <laughs> and it's, it's a very funny scene and it's Aaron Sorkin. So it's brilliantly written with like too many adjectives, but they, um, anyway, the point is like, I think that that is what she is. That, like that she's wearing like this acrid yellow and, uh, and green is exactly right. But there is unfortunately like she has a pretty powerful place. So what does that say about a society where that's the kind of truth that they prefer or that's the kind of so-called truth that they prefer? It's not good, right? It's like that there, there is evil in the world, but there are also the conditions that make evil grow. Right. Um, right. I can totally agree that she is symptomatic of that, which would allow Voldemort to return because people are turning their faces from the real truth in order to see only the negatives in others rather than in themselves or, or the real problems in society. And sorry, Wes, didn't mean to jump in there too fast. You just got, you guys are too quick sometimes. Um, I was just going to say, it's kind of interesting <laughs> too how when, when Hagrid uh, takes his leave of absence here to, to kind of weep off by himself, uh, the substitute teacher who comes in, Professor Grubbly Plank, actually gives like a pretty great lesson right and it's about the uh, the opposite of darkness and evil kind of interestingly right the the unicorn symbol comes back here mm -hmm. and uh and i thought that was kind of a cool like counterpart to the kinds of creatures hagrid's been showing them i, I thought that was kind of the main point maybe was just a contrast mm. there and how everyone like immediately loves the unicorn because it's so you know, beautiful, splendid compared to the blast-ended scroots they've been handling for the whole year. So I, I thought that was kind of odd, um, like a, a little thing that I didn't remember that well, I guess, but uh, kind of struck me as we were reading this time, because that unicorn, I mean, that's important. Well, let me ask you two things about that, and I'll extend this also to Sarah, too, because I was pretty interested in that, too, because how I read that was sort of like how you become attached to teachers who you really like as people sometimes, and you are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt as a student. But then when you're exposed to a different teacher with a different teaching methodology, methodology, often they have plenty of great things to offer you too, like A, unicorn, very hard to catch, obviously talented person. B, knows her stuff, knows that 
unicorns are easier to touch or prefer to be touched by women rather than men, which I thought was an interesting further comment on the differentiation of the genders as we go through this series, um, that there is an actual written into the secondary world major, or you know, difference between who can handle these creatures with ultimate care. And so as if she's now bringing a feminine touch to care of the magical creatures too, whereas uh, obviously Hagrid is more like an engineer or mad scientist because we find out that the blast-skinned scroots are actually a hybrid that he's created, which is very interesting because that expands the theme on him, himself being a hybrid and us realizing that, and himself loving dragons, which are a hybrid creature, reptile plus bird, and hippogriffs, hippogriffs, which are horse plus eagle, also a hybrid creature, and uh, the, the unicorn is of course a hybrid, just like Grubbly Plank has a hybrid name, two names, but I, I was wondering if mm. what you saw in that really, Wes, because I saw a lot of that, but I'm not sure. But it sounds sort of like you saw you saw more as well or that, too. I'm, what did both of you take from that? <laughs> no, I didn't see any of that. <laughs> Honestly, that's really interesting. Uh, I mean, I did sort of pick up on the uh, the unicorn being a hit with the girls in particular. Right. And uh, and one of them does mention how how it's so hard to catch them. So they're very impressed by Professor Grubbly Plank's you know abilities as a uh, as a teacher, but also as a I suppose a a magician or a, a, a witch, right? It does also have this kind of favoritism though, which is sort of again reversed, right? So they've they do like you're saying they have this um, liking for Hagrid. They might sort of blind them to some of his flaws and she has got a liking or you know a preference it seems for for the females side of things um that she's wanting to bring out in her very first lesson it's a it's a pretty strong statement you know being a substitute teacher i don't know if i would go with unicorns on the first class that's that's pretty hard you know hard line to take Yeah, I mean, I I didn't I didn't see the hybrid details that or the pattern that you identified, Alex. I think that's that's really apt. Um, it sort of reminds me of our conversation last week about the ways in which um, various kinds of new things are acceptable or um, new is the wrong word. I'm sorry, um, hybrids or um, creatures with obvious um imperfections or what appears kind of like impurities in the breeding shall we say like half muggle witches and wizards or how those are like far more welcome at hogwarts um even more so than boba uh bobatons or so it um so it now appears but um i mean i like what you mentioned though about harry their reaction to grubbly um uh, what's her name grubbly paint Plank? Am I, getting, I think I'm getting that wrong. Yeah, you got that plank. Yeah, I just, I think it's really interesting, like, how angry Harry gets over this. Like, he is livid with, uh, I mean, he's in a furious state. He's furious even that Hermione acknowledges that it was a good lesson. He's, um, it's almost like he's, the one who's been raked over the coals by the Rita Skeeter article more so than um, than Hagrid. I mean, Hagrid's clearly the target of this piece, but like, um, 
I, I don't know. I, I, find, I think it's interesting, like, how mad he gets at her. Uh, um, and the people who think that the article is okay. I, I don't know that I have ever had um, a teacher uh, for whom I would um, – I would be that mad if if someone came along and did it better. Um, I don't I don't know. I, it it seems like more than teacher student. It seems very um, like fraternal or even uh, child parent level of loyalty. Um, I know we've talked sort of about fathers and sons um, and the different kinds of fatherhood that or uh, uh, fatherly figures that this book presents. Uh, I think we'll see that even more, but, um, you know, Hagrid's always been the one to kind of expose him to things that are true. Uh, maybe, un- maybe not, not willingly, maybe reluctantly at times. Um, but he, I, I don't know. I think that, that, that was the part that struck me about, about that whole, um, the scoop and, and their reaction to it. Well, I, I agree. There's a lot going on there because the relationship between Harry and Hagrid is sort of undefined. You know, he has sort of mm-hmm. had this sort of hermetic Hermes-like transmitting figure. He takes Harry from one place to another, right? He either takes him from the non-magical world to the magical world, or he takes him from a place of not understanding things to understanding them, or from the civilized, domesticated world of the, the school out into the dark forest and sort of the in-between, which is the care of the magical creatures place. But I, I wonder to what extent it's sort of like when somebody likes Rita or when somebody likes this new professor who is there because of an article by Rita Skeeter that is like tacit approval of Rita Skeeter and her effect on the world, which is also uh, panning Harry. It's as if he's now feeling himself part of this victimized class of people like Hagrid. That he finds himself mm. like the blast-ended Scrooge, this odd hybrid that somebody that people don't know the meaning of, that they don't know the use of. And that he's, he's identifying with this and he's identifying with Hagrid as, as part of this group of people that have been harmed by Rita Skeeter. And this is starting to really eat at him some because this isn't, if that's mm. true, that's not something he shares with his friends until Hermione gets panned too. Um, mm. Well, and he's got some things he's not telling, you know, as usual, uh, he doesn't tell Hagrid that he overheard the conversation that Rita Skeeter apparently somehow also overheard, right? And he doesn't tell um, anyone that he hasn't actually, like, figured out the egg yet. He keeps letting everyone sort of believe that he's got it figured out. Uh, and he has to, it's it's part of the, uh, the kind of denouement of this chapter that he decides that you know, because Hagrid believes in him so much, you know, and he's not being completely upfront with him, that he's got to go ahead and, and use Cedric's help to figure out this egg thing, because he's got to, like, you know, be the person that Hagrid believes him to be. Well, let's talk about that some, because, okay, let's get into the second chapter, and let's talk about Harry's feelings towards Cedric, what he has to do in this water with this egg, this very non-intuitive it's, it reminds me, this very non-intuitive clue, it reminds me quite a bit of playing Final Fantasy VII with you, Wes. Like, sometimes it's just very unclear what the next step is. And for, for this challenge, I almost wonder whether part of this Triwizard Tournament is that you be a likable enough fellow that people are willing to help you. Because it seems like, you, it seems like the whole school is supposed to be behind you if you're the champion. And everybody under under the table is supposed to be really trying to help you win. Because... 
no, nobody is, you know, it, recall, it, it recalls to me FIFA soccer, right? Nobody's clean. And, but that's the hmm. game. And hey, no, now. Hey, uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> or at least what's said, what's said publicly about them in any case. In any case, I just wonder if, if that's also part of the game. There's how it's supposed to be perceived and how it actually is. Um, but even just moving on from that, and perhaps that's not true. I don't follow soccer as well as you do. So you can speak to that if we ever really need to. I mean, we're current events. We can spend a whole episode on that. But um, what, what also do you think of this second task and the fact that it's not just your butt on the line, but, all, but also your friend and also instead of a fire task in, on the ground and in the air, this is a water task below, below the surface and there's more at stake. And there's a weird figuring out aspect, just like in the first one. And well, I just want to talk some about this second task and the events leading up to it. Oh, and of course, the odd sexual tension between Moni Myrtle and Harry in the prefect bathroom. Just can't help but mention that. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, well, that, plus there's like a really beautiful mermaid in the stained glass window that was apparently like making eyes at Cedric, which is <laughs> weird. Um, but no, I, I, so I was, I, last week I was really interested in why hold, or not holding, sorry, I've been grading Katrin there on my papers all day. Um, why Harry was so willing to give Cedric a hint uh, about the dragons. And yet when Cedric, a, a boy who everybody says is like super nice and um, kind and, you know, it's hard to find anything wrong with him. When he gives him a hint, Harry is so reluctant to accept it. I find that very strange, um, or at least noteworthy. Um, and yeah, I think that I, I noted too, Alex, uh, Alex, the, the water and fire imagery, um, or well, fire and air, um, and like, uh, being above the land and, um, the water and earth kind of being intertwined in the second task. The, that's interesting considering that one of the schools like literally got there through the air and one of them got there through the water. And yet um, in the second task, like neither of them do as well as the other two from Hogwarts, I guess is I think interesting, but um, anyway, yeah, no, I'm curious what you all think about why Harry was so reluctant to accept the help. Is it just that the, the instructions are kind of weird? Or is it that he doesn't want the answer? Or is it that he just genuinely doesn't trust that Cedric would do something so out of character and lie? I don't know. Cedric's not a Slytherin. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Mm, I mean, I think it's partly his, his pride won't allow him to take whatever help Cedric has offered him. You know, he, he wants to um, figure it out on his own. and the bind of it is that he can't possibly figure it out because Cedric has essentially told him like the answer, right? Like, and he can't even get mm -hmm. Cedric's hint. Like, it's not even that it's like, he can't quite understand how this is supposed to be a helpful hint until he gets a further hint from moaning Myrtle who essentially just like tells him what to do. Right. It's cause she's been, yeah, as you say, uh, watching Cedric in the bath and saw what happened when he put the egg under the water and she, you know, uh, has been a character in the story before. And again, this is kind of what made me think back to the second book and the other times that she's come into the story. It's been when there's like a mystery 
right, that concerns the entire school, um, where she is a well-known but unpopular person who is juxtaposed against these well-known and very popular figures. Well, Harry, in some cases, you know, infamous, but at least everyone knows who he is and turns out that, sure enough, he's the hero every time, right? So he kind of manages okay. But but anyway, there's there's that kind of element of it, of her wanting to um, be close to life, you know, close to beauty and, and living things, uh, which were sort of taken away from her at a young age. She seems to be kind of arrested at the age at which she died. Um, so all this kind of comes through in a, a little bit of a creepy way. But I think it's a pretty moving thing, actually, how much she wants to see these people do well, I guess. I agree. And she's, she's also obviously Hogwarts, right? She's pro Hogwarts. So she's still retained, even in her death, like many of those guests, her sort of partisan uh, feelings for Hogwarts, even though she was obviously killed there and she could feel very differently. But two, two additional things you made me think of, the connection to the second book. In the second task specifically, you have a descent to an underworld with water involved where there are amphibious reptile sort of creatures defending someone you care about that ostensibly will die if you fail to get them. And that recalls to me mm. quite, a bit of, quite a bit of going into the chamber, chamber of Secrets and getting Ginny Weasley and keeping her from being, you know, consumed by the basilisk slash the, the have her life force depleted by this, this, um, um, this, uh, this book. But I also wanted to ask whether, because one of, again, the global perspectives we've been looking at our themes is sort of the sharing of wisdom perspectives. We've even been talking about that some today. We've been talking about sort of seeing things from the journalistic perspective or the ministry perspective or the common wizard perspective or the mixed blood wizard perspective as opposed to the pure one. That's a lot of different perspectives swirl around here. And I wondered what y'all thought about the fact that part of this task is being able to understand that there are other perspectives than yours. What you have to do is take this egg, which is a symbol for the birth of a new idea or the birth of a new thing, and you put it in the water, which is not the medium you generally listen to. Usually things are muffled in the water. You don't see right in the water. You can't hear right in the water. But in the water here, that is the perfect medium for understanding this language. You literally have to, to take a new perspective even to understand what is happening here. It, it is almost like this task itself is a microcosm of the point of the Triwizard Tournament as well as the Quidditch World Cup, a sharing or a learning a new perspective in order to, to, uh, uh, do, to save someone who is valuable to you, uh, which makes me think that that is precisely the problem with Rita Skeeter's journalism, that part of what a good journalist or information provider is, is they provide the information necessary for you to see a new perspective that makes you, I don't know, more robust uh, in your world and more capable of saving those who might need saving in your life. Yeah, well, to that point, it's like with Harry, getting help from these people, uh, the, the elf, right, who's so looked down upon by so many people, the elf helps him, uh, Hagrid, who's half giant, okay, not a full giant, but still, he's got giant blood in him, but he's like, you know, one of the most trustworthy people, possibly like the most uh, kind person in, in the whole book, right? And, and so the, there's something interesting that um, this task does involve another, yet another race, that we haven't really experienced much with before these mer people um, introduced through art, as you 
point out, right, the picture on the wall or, or whatever it is. Um, and then we, we see them up close and they're quite terrifying, quite different from what we might be expecting. Uh, but, but apparently sentient and, you know, articulate and um, they speak with Dumbledore. He kind of appeases them somehow, right? And, um, and so there's just this sense that there's, there's still a lot more going on in this world than, than we know about, you know, probably Ron could tell us, oh, duh, like, you know, mer people. Yeah, I knew about them this whole time. You didn't know there were mer people down there, right? But yeah, Ron doesn't seem too phased yet again, like when he's rescued, he's like, oh, yeah. Um, but so there's some, there's some interesting stuff going on there with, um, yeah, information and how it comes out. And I think part of what's this, what this task shows is that so much depends on the process of doing the task and not just the outcome of the task, right? Like you're describing with Rita mm. Skeeter and her stories. If, if everyone could see what we see as readers of how she gets these stories, they might take a second look at what she's actually saying. You know, um, so much of, of having that broader perspective is seeing a process and not just an outcome or like, like a test. You know, part of what's so, so stressful about tests is that you sit there and you take it and it doesn't really necessarily reflect the, the preparation you might have put in or the effort or any of that, right? You don't get to see anything but this little tiny snapshot and it's the best we can do, sure, maybe, but, but the, there's a whole narrative there that's sort of left out of the picture. And well, so what do you think about Harry's, well, so two additional pieces of information to consider in this situation. A, Neville's role in helping Harry figure out what was going on there. And I don't recall whether it was one of you who brought it up. I think it was. It must have been one of you. Was it one of you that brought up the fact that Neville actually would have been very helpful in the very first task because he was talking about some literature on levitating sorts of uh, trees, uh, which would have hipped Harry to the idea of his uh, using his wand to get his wooden firebolt. Um, uh, um, so what, I'm forgetting the term for uh, broom. There we go, his broom. And then he, of course, suggests the gillyweed this time around. And then also just how Harry plays the game. I, I, I feel like he could almost be like a Robert Frost, the road not taken. Like it's too obvious that Harry is winning the game outside of the game. He's the true hero in this situation. Perhaps the third task supports that idea. But what y'all thought of Neville's role and his help and the help coming from the unlikely source, sort of like Hagrid in the first case. And um, also that Harry actually ends up not winning this task, even though he well could have if he had played the game, quote unquote, right. The, uh, the Neville thing, there's this little moment where Harry is so in his own thoughts that he steps in the invisible stare uh, that that Neville always misses, right? Um, that that little detail uh, I noticed this time. I that again sort of puts him in Neville's place. You know, um, they're in some sense, yeah, alter egos of one another. Uh, I don't know quite how far to go with that idea that you know Neville has got sort of the answers because. He doesn't really realize that he's got the answers, so it's it's not quite the same. Um, I obviously think Neville is the most important character in the book, and so I just would have to give it a little more time to to see why that's the case in in this situation. Well, I think doesn't 
doesn't Dobby give him like the act, like the idea? I think this is on page like 490 or 491 that um, Dobby hands it to him, right? It looks like slimy grayish green rat tails. Oh, that's disgusting. Um, now that I read that out loud, that's pretty foul. Um, but like, I mean, I think the qu- the question is the same, like, but Harry's getting support from like seemingly non-champion like figures, you know, Myrtle is dead. Um, Dobby is crazy. Um, Neville is, you know, kind of considering a considered a bumbling fool. Um, and that, yeah, like uh, there's a limit to which um, Hermione and Ron are able to help him, right? Um, I know maybe I missed the part where Neville gives them the the tip. Is it, was that in the library, maybe? But um, I don't know. I think. Um, Alex, you asked, like, what do we make of the fact that he doesn't win the task than he would have had he played it the right way? I don't know. I think that implies that that there is one more right way. Um, uh, Crumb did everything right, and he didn't even he didn't win either. You know, I, I guess maybe his his magic was um, like incomplete I think it's like he used an incomplete form of some charm um but that he got the person back not none of them got back in the time allotted um and and so in that sense none of them did the did the game right um so I don't know I feel like there's a just achievement of the task is like you said um with your comment about the test Wes like achieving the task is um, important but how you achieve the task is equally important and I obviously because of how he performed in the task Harry is able to do better than had he performed in a different manner but achieved the same thing which was saving one if not two um but yeah I think I think like that just yeah like you guys said requires a shift in perspective that it it assumes that games aren't only about you know getting the trophy or um you know how like winning the most points I mean uh I say this as the coach of a losing basketball team but like yeah we have won zero games but we've gotten better um and you know that's that's not nothing um and I don't know I I think I think maybe that's maybe that's part of the point is that, um, you know, an adjustment in your definition of what is true or what is the one way to look at something um, or that there's only one way to look at something that seems to like open the possibility that there's more than one way to like skin a cat or, um, you know, win a battle or um, all of that. Well, it's interesting, too, to what extent skill and care play major roles in this task, because it is, of course, Flora who is closest to her sister. She has the closest relationship of anybody there. Cedric to essentially his girlfriend, Cho. Victor, same, his girlfriend. Um, Hermione-ish. And um, also Harry, Ron, who is his closest friend. But then Flora, the one who fails this, and I wondered why you thought this was. Was it a technical error on her part? Was it because, or was it because she cared too much 
about the task and could not perform? And, or, or was there even an added element that what it takes to be uh, to get through the task of life, if we take the Triwizard Tournament as sort of what life can throw at you and the consequences of it, is it that it's not enough to care a lot, that you also need skill, and that you need skilled good people like Harry to pick up the slack when, when say, you fall, and that that's part of, part of the value of being part of a society in which people are highly skilled and capable. Hmm. I suppose there's there's an element of it being contrived here too, though. Um, in this case, I I think that Harry is acting on the belief that if he doesn't, you know, be the hero, then these people will will actually, you know, die or or be seriously hurt or something. So he's he's a little bit, um, I guess, taking the game you know, with, with due seriousness, but there's maybe a, an element of him not fully trusting the organizers to step in if things get too dangerous, right? So there's, there's a fine line there, I guess. And his, um, his behavior, again, is, uh, is noble, and, and it sort of changes the way that um, Fleur uh, looks at him. Right, so there's there's that element which is sort of outside of the game entirely, but seems like what the game is, is really for, as you're saying, right, is like developing these relationships across uh, borders from different schools, mm. from different species, even, and, and so that in that sense, like, yeah, I mean, no matter how many points he gets, those kisses, I mean, come on, that's that's invaluable. <laughs> well, and I want to ask about that because I think that's a really interesting point you're making. And I, I'd like to ask both of you, do you think it is Harry having due seriousness and having the heart of a champion and a hero that makes him get floor or that this is still vestigial pride that we saw in the third book from him, sort of the, if I don't do it, well, I'm of course the only one that could do it. Uh, is it, is it, an inflation on his part. So that is something I have a real question about. That's not a teacher question. Like, is, is he right not to trust the organizers, especially given what will happen later, uh, and, and just what has happened in the past with the Triwizard Tournament and the fact that he knows that people have died? Or, or, or is it, and it seems like you're sort of reading it a little bit in this way, Wes, is he sort of just thinking that he is the only one because it is him and uh, he is the only one who, I don't know, even, even given all the evidence that he's obviously not in control, uh, uh, has to be the one in the control. But I guess there's even a third interpretation, which is in this situation, when it looks like only he can do something, is it right for him to do what it is that he does? Or, or is he foolish to do it and to not fully trust the game? Or I guess that's just the better way to ask the question. Well... It's yeah, it's a tough question. It does seem to be one where you can really kind of interpret Harry um, in in a few different ways here. I, I mean, frankly, I think part of it is that he cares really personally about three of the four people who are down there, right? So mm -hmm. to take just one is is asking a lot of him. Um, and so I think there's that element of hesitation to go along with the the ones you've enumerated um again it's like he he trusts um 
Dumbledore implicitly, right? But on the other hand, when you're actually like under the lake and you see these three people and this other person who are helpless that you care about, well, it's pretty hard to just, you know, coldly um, play the game. I, I think what you're, you're putting your finger on there is what he didn't see when he won the Quidditch World Cup, even though Buckbeak was going to be killed and he got a note about that. That what he seems to be seeing here, which might suggest growth in character buildings, Roman, is that he does see something outside the game. He doesn't just play the game within the game, but also the game outside the game in the way that he failed to do when he won the Quidditch World Cup, though we thought that that was a bit of a hollow victory, given that his best friend was about to lose this creature that he was at fault for um, uh, having, that was going to be executed due to him exposing it to the children. Hagrid showing Buckbeak to Malfoy that then led to that situation. But, okay, I have, I have a big time wizarding question for both of you uh, to conclude on now. And this might be a tough one, but I think it's gonna be a lot better than the last one. So here it is. Second task, you come from any of the three schools we see here. Part A of the question, who is it that in your life who you would not expect, who gives you the information necessary to help you here? Who is your Dobby? Who is your Neville? And then second question, who is it at the bottom of the lake for you? Hmm, that's a good question. I know, I didn't I mean, ask it not knowing the answer myself. Always a dangerous sort of question to ask. Yeah, and you're putting us on the spot here. Are we talking about like in life or in like a specific task? <laughs> like if I, are you talking about like if we were in the second task? Yes. It would be at the bottom? Yes, exactly. And who would help you to figure out? So maybe you can just do one of those because those are two very difficult choices all at once. But perhaps that's how life is. Throws two very difficult choices at you all at once frequently. Hmm. Well, I, can say, yeah. I don't know. Any ideas, Wes? I mean, I, I mean, I think my wife would be down there at the bottom and to get the hint to go look for her. I don't know, maybe like a neighbor or somebody I sort of talked to, but not a whole lot sort of thing, you know, that they've got wisdom, but I don't necessarily always recognize it very well. Hmm. Yeah, and I, w I was thinking personally myself, it would be my girlfriend at the bottom and, um, but then the person who would give me information, I'm thinking of a very particular student who's missed the last seven homework assignments. And many of his teachers, you know, there, there are many conversations about how to set this person straight and put them and put and have him use his abilities in a way that is salubrious to him and the community. And so I think often he is not, he is seen in a very particular Nebillian way. He is seen for the negatives that he has started to embrace. But I think, I think precisely because I would not expect something excellent to come from him immediately, though he's of course very much capable of producing that, that it would be him, at least in how my current life is if I were subjected to the second task. He would be very much, um, he's somebody I'm pulling very much for, sort of like how you're pulling for Neville, Wes, and, um, uh, but he would definitely be an unexpected source of information, like a, like a Dobby or a Moaning Myrtle or a Neville. Yeah, I don't really know how to answer the first part of the question, but I was definitely going to say a student would definitely be like to me Dobby like pops up at really inconvenient times but always has like 
a useful piece of information or at least a source of entertainment and delight. Like he takes such delight in the world and things that um, most people just find mundane. He's like really in awe of. Um, and I think, yeah, I think kids do that really well. And I think more adults should. So I probably get information like the, an important piece of information um, from from a student. Um, I don't know who would be at the bottom. Probably, I don't know. I can't answer that. All right. Well, hopefully it doesn't just happen so that you f figure it out on the fly. Um, all right, y'all. Well, that, that was excellent. That's a tough question too. So I'm really impressed with y'all being able to. I mean. It is very interesting when you're asked questions, not about your knowledge, but about what you care about. It does seem to be a little bit more difficult, at least for me, to sift through that. Um, I, of course, have my canned answers that I give to everything. But when I have to really feel it out, it's, it's not so easy. It's delicate. It's interesting. So for next time, y'all, um, I see 27, Padfoot Returns, 28, The Madness of Mr. Crouch, and 29, The Dream. Do you all think that, should we go to 30, The Pensieve? Or stop at 29. How do y'all feel about that? I mean, the dream and the pensive are really closely related. So I feel like if we could, that would be a good idea. Okay. Okay. Wes? Yeah, I remember the pensive being pretty cool. So I'd like to see that uh, for next time as well. And then that'll give us kind of the last chunk of the book to do. Excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot about like fatherhood and different kinds of paternal figures and growing up here, so. Well, that'll be helpful yeah. for all of us, that's for sure. And, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, y'all, I appreciate you teaching on this day when you did not have to be teaching. And um, as usual, right. it's always wonderful to have these conversations with both of you. They're only getting better. Just as Hermione, Ron, and uh, Harry are, are becoming closer and closer and knowing each other better as they develop. I feel like quite the same is happening with us. And so this continues to be wonderful, better each time. Thanks. Absolutely. All right, well. All right. Until next Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Happy Martin Luther King Day. Happy Martin Luther King Day. Cheers, y'all. Clank. Cheers. Clank, clank. Bye. Yeah. Bye.